You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now let's turn again in our Bibles to the Gospel according to John, where we've been reading and studying for a number of weeks now in the first chapter. You'll find the passage uh, on the first page of John's Gospel, uh, I imagine. Um, I can hardly believe you might need the page number, but if you need the page number, it is page 1063, page 1063, and we're going to read this evening from uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 1 verse 14. Uh, This series is taking us a good deal longer than was originally anticipated. Uh, For those of you who are visitors, it began as a series on John's Gospel, and it's ending as a series on the prologue to John's Gospel, the first 18 verses. Uh, And this was revealed to us when uh, by the end of the first evening we were still in the middle of verse 1. And um, if this is getting to any of you, I think the wise thing to do is to speak quietly to our session clerk, John Ferguson. Do not do this at the end of the service because I will notice. (laughs) So you will not speak to him about this at the end of the service lest I notice you're saying it's time we got on past the prologue to John's gospel. But it is fascinating, Um, and uh, I want us then to uh, look this evening at, at part of verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not mastered it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He, that is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And it's only the first few words of verse 14 I want us to focus on this evening. And the word became flesh. And I want us to do this because this is the climax of the prologue to John's gospel. It is towards this statement that the previous 13 verses have been moving. And it's also in some ways the profoundest statement that is to be found anywhere in John's gospel. It is, if we can uh, feel the weight of it, a statement of not only extraordinary significance, but of history-transforming significance and of mind-shaping and mind-extending significance. And yet, like uh, so many other statements in the Scripture, uh, there are just a few words here, but a few words that are ultimately impossible for us fully to understand and fully to fathom. And that is so because of where John has been leading us in the prologue. Uh, perhaps we can think of him as, as coming to us where we sit and uh, taking us as children by the hand and saying, now, I want you to follow this step by step. And he's taken us, first of all, behind the scenes of time and history. He has taken us in a completely unique way up to this point in the Bible, up to this point in the Bible. He has taken us, as it were, back to the place where the Bible began, back to the beginning, back in a sense to that conversation that Genesis 1 allows us to overhear in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 where God, having simply spoken things out in creation, now speaks within Himself. Let us, He says, let us make man as our image. And so we are told that male and female, He made man as His image. And there, at the beginning of the Bible, there is a, there is a glimpse into the community of heaven the community before the creation of man, the community that was before the creation of anything, the, the time that is unimaginable to us because we ourselves cannot really imagine anything without understanding our own existence, but not just before our existence and the existence of our ancestors, but before the existence of anything before the existence of angels and archangels, for the existence of the devil. They are in the in-being of God. The conversation that takes place is echoed in the first verse of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And as we saw the Word there in all eternity beyond our stretch even to imagine, there in all eternity, the Word was God and was face to face with God. Or as now he's going on to say, by implication, the Son was face to face with his Father. And later on, we could add that they were bound together in communion and love by the person of the Holy Spirit. And then he begins to descend. 
He tells us that the Word was Himself life and became light to the whole of creation, became the mediator of the revelation of God, shedding light to the whole created order, enabling us to see in the light of creation the glory and majesty of the triune God who had brought it into being. We don't gaze on the light, but in the light we are able to see. And John has been explaining to us, of course, he's speaking into a Hellenistic philosophical culture, just as today we speak into a particular kind of culture. And uh, he's, he's saying that what our own culture needs to hear is at the end of the day, unless there is this light, you will never be able to see things either, A, clearly, nor B, will you be able to understand if they have any purpose, and if they have a purpose and a design, what that purpose and design is. And then he's taken us even further. He's spoken about this light shining upon men, and, and men not mastering the light in the sense that they, uh, the people we know, they, they cannot understand the revelation of God, although it is light to them. And the reason is because they are inwardly blind, but they assume the darkness within them is light, that things are as they see them to be. And they refuse to readjust themselves around the light, to look at things in the light of the light. They find themselves in darkness. And what is the solution? Well, God prepares for the solution. He sends a man by the name of John, John the baptizer, who prepares the way for the light. He is not the light, but he prepares the way for the light. And then, as we saw last time, the light was coming into the world, and then those who believed in him were given the privileges of becoming the children of God. And what a word that is for our orphaned generation. I mean spiritually, mentally, morally, emotionally, psychologically orphaned generation. That it's possible for us, by God's grace, to become children of the living God when we come to believe in the name of Jesus. And yet, you notice as he builds up and builds up, there is a, there's even just a literary brilliance about this, that there are things he keeps back. For example, if you knew nothing about Jesus, you wouldn't know he was speaking about Jesus. He hasn't mentioned Jesus' name. Indeed, if you can go back into the midst of your childhood, perhaps listening to this read at a Christmas service sometime, you may have thought, well, I think I can understand the bits about Mary and Joseph and the other Gospels. What is this all about? Who is this Logos? What is this light? Who is this man sent from God? No names are mentioned, and he's still not going to mention a name. But now what he wants to say is, here is something you need to know about this light that was coming into the world. This light was the word about which I told you in the opening verse of my gospel. And when I say that light, 
that sheds light on all reality was coming into the world, what I mean by that was this Word, this Word from all eternity, this Son of God who was face to face with God, who was in perfect communion with God, came into the world in a specific fashion. This is both the wonder of the gospel and the mystery of the gospel, that the eternal logos of God became flesh. And if you will forgive the pun, that's something that we need to flesh out, that the one who was in the beginning with God and was God and was face to face with God and who came into the world did so by becoming flesh, by taking on human nature. It's an astonishing statement. Even given what John has already said, it's an astonishing statement that the one who is life has come into the world of death, that the one who is light has come into the world of darkness, that the one who is from all eternity has come into the world of time and that the one who in eternity was adored in glory came into the world and was not recognized even by his own people. And so he's preparing us for the the starkness of the contrast, the distance between who he is and what he became. The Word became flesh. And probably all of us in the room tonight, we're, we're all familiar. We mean, we can read on, can't we? We all, we all understand what that means until somebody says to us, what does that mean? What does he mean by saying the Word became flesh? We can understand Word because we've been reading about Word in words. We can understand flesh because we see flesh and we've got flesh. But this, I guess this is what the scientists would call a singularity. This is something that we cannot explain in terms other than itself because there are no terms other than itself that are analogous to this. This has never happened before. You cannot say, well, the Word became flesh is like this, because the very point that John is making suggests it's impossible to say it's like something else, because never before since the creation of the world has God in this sense permanently stepped into the world and if one could put it this way, as creator of the world, become part of the world which he had created. I mean, it's an astonishing statement. It's a breathtaking statement. It's just the kind of statement that would make most of us who preach and teach and talk about the gospel say, this is so glorious. This is how you should feel about it. And transgress C.S. Lewis's great principle, you remember. You should never tell anybody how they should feel about something. You should describe that something so that they will feel that way about it. And that's the real challenge, isn't it? Isn't it so much easier when we are speaking about the gospel? You should really feel fantastic about this. 
but to display how fantastic it is. And this is why this chapter takes calls for patience from us, because we seem to be almost immune to taking in the vastness of what is being said here. And our tendency when that is the case, when we when we are immune to taking in the vastness of an apparently simple statement, our tendency is to, to push it to the back, isn't it? We're, we're like, I guess, the majority of parents in this country who, when their six-year-old asks a theological question, tells them they shouldn't be interested in that, really meaning, I have no idea what the answer to that question is. That goes on everywhere. That goes on in the homes and families of people who are atheists, week in and week out. We are innately interested in these big questions, and we live in a society that has created within us and around us an impatience with these big questions to say, you shouldn't be interested in these big questions. We don't have time for these big questions. And that's why we're such little people, because it's only the answer to the big questions that makes believers big people. It's very interesting to me in the history of the church, in the history of the church, it was in the first few centuries that people were willing to spill their lifeblood over the meaning of a statement like this that today most evangelical Christians would say, don't bother about it, it doesn't really matter. And I liken that to this. I liken that to a man who stands and listens to another man saying, I don't like your wife, I think your wife is ugly, I don't care about her, I don't think anybody should care about her, and it doesn't matter how you describe her. It doesn't matter how you describe her. Well, you'd be clenching, if you're a married man and love your wife, you'd be clenching your fist behind your back, wouldn't you? Because you care about how those you love are described, and you care that they should be rightly described. Then why should I not care passionately about how Jesus should rightly be described? Why should I not care passionately about what does it mean that the Word became flesh? Well, three things tonight. There are always three things, but tonight there are only three things. But one of those things has three things. So this is a disguise for six things. The first thing to notice is this. And it, it's so obvious, but we need, to, we need to allow it to sink in. The Word became flesh willingly. Now, that, that only becomes obvious when you've read through the whole of John's Gospel, because if you know John's Gospel, what is the characteristic way that John's gospel describes the relationship between the Father and the Lord Jesus being here. It is, I think, there may be more than a dozen occasions, maybe 15 occasions, where the verb that links Jesus with eternity is that He has been sent. In other words, the big emphasis in John's gospel 
is that Jesus is being obedient. The Word is being obedient by coming into the world. And perhaps that's the reason, because John knows that's what the big emphasis is going to be on the obedience of Jesus, because Jesus' obedience is so central to his work of salvation that the, the right at the very beginning of the gospel, in the first chapter, he says, now don't think of it simply as Jesus being commanded by his Father to come. No, think of it first of all this way, that the Word himself voluntarily became flesh. Now, why is that so important? It's so important because John is setting us up almost subliminally to understand a tremendously significant principle that we find running through John's gospel, and that is that the will of the Father for our salvation and the will of the Son for our salvation are one and the same will. Think back to right at the very beginning when we spoke about the Word was God, He was with God, and how we spoke about the fact that the preposition with there is a preposition that means towards, that, that as one commentator translates it, the, the Word was face to face with God. And try and think of a moment in eternity or think of it this way. You've been in situations where there's conversation going on with a husband and wife, and just at the corner of your eye, you, you kind of notice them looking at each other just, just for a split second. And you realize that without words, they're thinking exactly the same thing about the situation at exactly the same moment. Or really close friends. You know, you do this with close friends, don't you? Something happens, somebody makes a mistake, something goes wrong, and there's just a kind of flicker of the eye, you know, there's a little, you know, movement of the eye, and, uh, you know, the bubble above the head is saying, we're thinking exactly the same thing about this. Isn't this ridiculous? What an idiot he's been. We know better, whatever it is. There's instantaneous harmony because of the proximity of the relationship, the, the closeness of the friendship. You become like those with whom you live. Don't you think that that… Where did that come from? came from the very heart of God, the Trinity. Now, there are mysteries here. Uh, we can't even speak about… We can't even think about the question, when did God decide to do this? But what John's gospel is saying to us is this. Uh, we can think about it this way, that the thought of the Father, I will send my Son to be their Savior, and the thought of the Son, I will become flesh in order to be their Savior, was a shared thought, a simultaneous thought. Now, why would it be a shared thought and a simultaneous thought? Because their, their minds are one mind, because there is a perfect attunement. Now, you know, you might think, well, that's, we're really beginning to get into recondite theology with that. Not at all. We need to understand that is one of the most practical principles about the being of God 
many Christians fail to understand. Why? Because so many Christians, in one way or another, internally, intuitively, emotionally, play off against each other, the Father and the Son. I know Jesus loves me. I'm not so sure about the Father. I know the Father loves me. I can't understand why Jesus had to die on the cross. I may have said before, I, 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 I have lost count of the number of people I've had in my office or in my house as a minister of the gospel. And when you get under the surface of what their trouble is, under it all, they think that what Jesus came into the world to do was to do something that would persuade the Father to love them, because He doesn't really. And so they put it like this, I understand that if Jesus died for my sins, then the Father would love me. You know, that's actually a heresy. And many Christians I know believe it is the essence of orthodoxy to think that the Father loves us because the Son was willing to die for us. Despite the fact there is one verse in the Bible they all know, the Father so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so this truth that goes along with the emphasis in John's gospel of the Father sending the Son really underscores for us the Father's love for us is as great as the Son's love for us. The Son would never have come if it were not for the fact the Father loves us. And the reason the Son came is because the Son loves us. So that at, right in the very heart of the being of God, the Christian believer may be assured that he has nothing but love for me. And I'm safe with him. Maybe you've known this as I've known this. Christians who have been Christians for years, and underneath it all, They've either feared the Father or they've feared the Son. And this statement, among other things, is here to persuade us that the Father and the Son love us with a harmony and simultaneity. That the thought on the Father's part, I will send my Son, and the thought on the Son's part, I will become flesh for their salvation. One and the same thought. One and the same thought. What a thing it is to be able to sink yourself into this truth that the Word became flesh willingly. But secondly, and this is also important, the Word became flesh mysteriously. I ask the question, we know the Word became flesh. We know what it means until somebody asks us what it means. But even when we've tried to ransack what it means, we recognize there's something quite mysterious about this. Because we can't answer the question, how? We know who He is as the eternal Word of God, and we understand what it means to be flesh. But how he became flesh, 
Well, you see, he became flesh through a virgin conception. I, I understand all that, I think, except I don't. What I do is describe it. I say, I say this is a description of what happened. But what John is saying here it is, is beyond my powers to explain. In a sense, I would need myself to become God in order to explain how it is that the Son, who is eternally God, could become flesh. I understand that that takes place through his virgin conception. But how can the one who is the creator of the ends of the earth find himself in his eternal majesty and power in the womb of a teenage girl? And as we've been thinking, we can't say, well, it's like this, because there is nothing like this. So there is something mysterious about this, but at the same time, there are some things in this statement that really, that really keep us on the right lines. And there are three of them I want you to notice as quickly as we can. The first is this, that the Son of God did not abandon His deity by taking on our humanity. The Son of God did not abandon His deity by taking on our humanity. There are people who, who seem to think that's what happened. He was God and He became a man. He was God and He ceased to be God. That's not what John is saying. Um, if I can use our session clerk as an illustration without his permission, but it's too late to ask it now. John Ferguson became session clerk of St. Peter's Free Church last year sometime, I think, or maybe it was this year sometime. But he didn't cease to be John Ferguson when he became session clerk. He became something he was not without abandoning what he was. Now, that's a very trivial and superficial illustration, but it helps us at least catch the nuance of what John is saying, that when the Word becomes flesh, He doesn't cease to be the Word. So that when the Word becomes flesh, here's an amazing thing. He is still face to face with God. He who was face to face with God now in his incarnation comes face to face with us without ceasing to be face to face with God. He lives in our presence without, as it were, being abandoned by the presence of God. So he didn't abandon his deity, and John's gospel will make this clear because John underlines that, that he does God things, as people say nowadays. He turns water into wine. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. Elsewhere, he pardons sins. He rises from the dead. And perhaps not least of all, he keeps using the sacred divine name in relationship to himself. I am, I am, I am, I am. And so we mustn't think that Jesus was anything less than what He eternally was. Yes, we may sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, 
But that leads us to sing, Hail Incarnate Deity. And that's important for a very obvious reason. If he ceases to be God, he can no longer reveal God. And you'll notice if you just glance down the page a a little in verse 18, the conclusion of all this is no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. If he ceases to be God, he ceases to have the ability to reveal God. He can only reveal what it means to be maybe a really great man or even a perfect man, but he doesn't reveal God. And that's why John emphasizes here throughout the gospel that in becoming flesh, he doesn't cease to be God. And he remains God with God. And if you think about it this way, if he didn't remain God with God, how could he possibly reconcile us to God? Because that reconciliation needs to involve God pardoning our sins. So we mustn't ever think that in becoming flesh the Word ceased to be God. He did not abandon his deity by taking our humanity. But then secondly, we need to notice that in coming as deity, he nevertheless assumed our humanity, our humanity. Um, Calvin makes a very interesting comment about this when he says, he says, you know, in taking our flesh, he subjected himself to all our wretchedness of condition." It doesn't mean by that that he became sinful, but that he entered a fallen world, not an unfallen world, and that he he was liable to the frailty of human nature in a world that was characterized by sin. If I can, if I can put it this way, he was like, um, he was like, he was like a man who had never been in an atmosphere in which people were smoking, who for the first time walked out of the mall into that kind of 10-meter cloud of smoke in which the gaspers had been for the last three hours. You, you know what it's like now, don't you? I mean, some of you remember, when you, if you used to fly internationally, people could smoke at the back of the plane. So it's pretty uncomfortable at the front of the plane. And now you can't do that. But if you, got on, if, if you and, and the others got on a plane uh, to Belgium and then uh, down to Uganda, and suddenly, you know, somewhere the Belgian authorities said, everybody can smoke on the plane, they'd be almost asphyxiated. They're just not used to that environment, and so they would be excessively sensitive to it. And we need to understand that in a way we can't really understand, that's what it must have been like for the Lord Jesus to become flesh. Um, You know how sometimes people say, well, if he was really divine, um, then things must have been so much easier for him. But the very reverse is true, isn't it? When you're clean and pure, I haven't seen it, but you know, isn't there a movie about a man who's afflicted with knowing what everybody is thinking? 
That would drive you nuts, wouldn't it? Can you imagine someone who is perfectly holy living, living in a world where there is an aroma that comes from us? Someone who in our flesh is face to face with God, and now he's face to face with all this filth. My dear friends, there are things you can't stand just because you're a Christian, aren't you? You're in situations, you hear language, and you think, I want to get out of here. I cannot bear this. You don't make the mistake of thinking, do you? It must have been so much easier for the Lord Jesus. You notice how there are those occasions when he seems to kind of open to his soul to his disciples and say, how, how long have I got to bear this generation? It's not a word of complaint. It's a word of, of revelation. My dear brothers, he's saying to his disciples, have you any idea what this is like? And it's so important, therefore, for us to understand that for that reason, this sinful world into which Jesus came and in which he took our frail flesh in order to be exposed to our temptations. Those, t those temptations were far more horrific to him than they are to you. The reason temptation works, otherwise we'd all be sinlessly perfect. The reason temptation works is because there's something that we like about falling to the temptation. And that's why we never feel its full force. We give in before we feel its full force. And for John to say the Word became flesh, that in coming as deity, he nevertheless assumed our true humanity. What a statement that is. And of course, it's such an important statement, isn't it? Because there needs to be a, a, there needs to be a death if there's going to be life. And God cannot die. Nor apparently, given the way he has created the world, does God simply forgive sin like that? Because he is a just God. And so he needs to take our flesh in order that in that flesh he may live out the obedience that we have failed to render to God and then die the death we deserve for our failure and disobedience. The Word became flesh. And that means He's able to understand us. And again, you see, we make that kind of mistake, don't we? Well, if He was God, He couldn't really understand my temptations. But you see, because He sinlessly took our flesh and lived sinlessly in it, He knows a good deal more about our temptations than we do. And you know, at the end of the day when we've failed, it's true, we do not want to go to somebody who doesn't know anything about temptation, do we? But by the same token, we don't want to go to somebody who has simply failed the same way we've failed and doesn't know the way out. And that's why it's so marvelous, isn't it? This is something that it takes the, the author of Hebrews half his letter to explain this simple statement. The word became flesh, was exposed to our temptations. And that's why he's able to sympathize with us in our need. And then there's something else we need to notice. And that is that in taking our flesh, 
He did that as one divine person in order that he might act according to two different natures, in order that as God he might do what needs to be done by God for our salvation, and in order that he might pay the penalty in our humanity for our sin, and as Hebrews says, learn obedience through the things he suffered in order that he might be a high priest who could meet us in our need and sympathize with us in our weakness. So, it's an amazing statement, really, isn't it? So, first of all, the Word became flesh willingly. Secondly, the Word became flesh mysteriously. Because I say again, this is a description. It's not a final explanation. But then this third point, and with this we'll be done, because it's up to the minute relevant. The Word became flesh permanently. Do you understand that? I have this suspicion from just listening to Christians that a lot of Christians think that He took our flesh in order to die our death and to rise again, although why He needed to rise again is not very clear. And then it's almost as though He ascends to heaven like, a, like, a, a, like one of those spaceships going up at Cape Canaveral, you know? They boom up there, and there's all the power to get them there. But once that power has been employed, the, the booster rockets all fall down into the sea. And presumably that's how it was with Jesus. He went back to being God. Now, what John wants to say to us, if there's anything mind-bending, this is mind-bending, is that something happened in the incarnation that God has decided is irreversible. The Son of God will forever possess our human nature. He will never cease to possess our human nature. It's amazing, isn't it? What condescension. I mean, you know, most things we can put up with as long as we know there's going to be an end to it like taking on frail flesh. I'll do it for 33 years. That's the deal. But once those 33 years are over, but you see, the wonder is that when He came, He never ceased to be God. When He goes back to heaven, He remains the God He always was. But now He has assumed forever our human flesh in order that, as it were, He might forever be the mediator between ourselves and God. It's breathtaking. It's incomprehensible. But you see, it's the light in which everything kind of becomes clear. It's this that guarantees that my salvation will be forever because the humanity He has taken in order to save me through it is His forever. So there's the great... Uh, Old Testament professor who preceded Will Traub by 150 years in the college in Edinburgh used to say, brethren, this very day the dust of the earth is seated on the throne of the universe. He's there and he's wearing my nature. And it's like, it's like wordlessly saying to me, I will love you forever. 
I will love you with an undying love. I'll never lose my connection to you. And you know what it also means? It also means that just as he was, as we read about him in the Gospels, in this Gospel and the other Gospels, he'll always be like that. He'll always be like that. That's why you can read the Gospels and then turn your eyes to heaven and say, Jesus, Son of God, eternal word, you're still this kind of Savior, speaking kindly to me, understanding me, wisely rebuking me, embracing me. That's what Hebrews means at the end when it says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday is during the course of his life and ministry. Today is now. And he'll be like that forever, forever and ever. He'll never change. He'll never be different. He'll never cease to love us. You see, it wasn't as though he said to his father, Father, just this once on the cross, I'll love them like that. It was that he said to his father, because I love them like this forever, that's why I'm willing to go to the cross to die for their sins. It is a mystery. The greatest mystery of all is why he would do it. But you see, that's a mystery that the Scriptures themselves answer. The reason he did it was because he loves us. And you know, when somebody really loves you and you say, why do you love me? What's the best answer? Just because I love you. Just because I love you. The Word was made flesh, dwelt among us. I was reading a letter that John Calvin wrote to uh, King Edward VI. Sorry to end with a history lesson. He's the young man who became king after Henry VIII and died as a teenager, very committed teenage Christian. And John Calvin wrote to encourage him and said to him, you know, it is a great thing to be a king. It is a great thing to be a king. Hope someone writes this to our future king. But it is an even greater privilege to be a Christian. An even greater privilege. Wow. That's a mystery. But you know, the Bible's word mystery means something that if God hadn't revealed it to us, we would have no idea what he'd been doing. And he's really saying to us in these words, let me give you a little glimpse of what I've been doing. Well, you've been unusually patient tonight. We should end with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you draw us into these mysteries. We, we thank you that Jesus has loved us like this 
and that the gospel is so simple a child could understand it. He has loved me, and he has died for me, and I do not need to die for my sins, and I love him. But we know also that there is no end to this mystery, because there is no end to this love, and no explanation for your love for us, especially your love for us as sinners, except that you have loved us, and we want to come to you tonight and say in response, and Lord, frail as we are, failing often, faltering in our understanding, we bow before this great mystery of our Savior's incarnation, and we tell you that by faith we love you too. Receive us, we pray, as your children. We ask it together and individually. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.